0: Hey everybody this is the washington state indivisible podcast part of the demcast podcast network i'm your host stefan cox this week with coronavirus continuing to spread in king county we speak with king county executive dow constantine to get the latest on what's being done to contain it how and where to get accurate information and about how residents can stay healthy and safe Then, we speak with the creators of the new documentary about gerrymandering, Slay the Dragon. Filmmakers Barrett Goodman and Chris Durrance join us to talk about how the GOP has weaponized redistricting in the United States, and about how citizen activists are standing up and fighting back. That is all ahead, so stay with us. As of this recording on Wednesday, March 4th, the coronavirus has claimed 10 lives in Washington, nine of them in King County. Dale Constantine is the King County executive, and he is here to help us understand what is known and unknown right now about the coronavirus outbreak and to talk about King County's response. Dale Constantine, I know you're very busy, so uh, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Well thanks for having me.
0: So you know when I put the word out that you would be joining us, of course, listeners had a million questions, so we'll just jump right in and the first one is about testing. What is the county's capacity right now for testing people with covid nineteen?
1: Yeah, so it is uh, it has been the CDC performing the testing now, uh, the state health department is up and running with the ability to test up to 100 people a day, patients a day. And they're working with the University of Washington to create additional capacity using the CDC's procedures, their assay, and then uh, and then yesterday, uh, State Health contacted the commercial labs across the state, Uh, imploring them to get in the game to start uh, participating in testing as well. So the challenge here is to ramp up the testing capacity as quickly as possible so that we have a better ability to track the progress of the virus and also to make sure folks who are, uh, say, uh, isolating themselves out of an abundance of caution uh, can find out if they're clear and get back on the job.
0: Absolutely. Um, tell us just briefly about what we know about the facilities for testing. I understand that there's a facility in Shoreline. Are there others forthcoming?
1: There are going to be others forthcoming. The state labs were already set up and they've ordered more equipment and uh, two new Uh, pieces of equipment will be arriving presently, and that's going to allow them to increase their own internal capacity. Uh, CDC has loosened the criteria for testing uh, for the use of their assets, and that's going to be helpful uh, in getting more people tested and tested earlier. We still don't have anywhere near the capacity to have everyone tested who wants to be, but uh, the fact is, and as our health officer, Jeff Duchin, pointed out, even if you test positive, there's very little difference in the treatment you're going to receive. You're going to be treated for your symptoms because there is not currently a treatment for, for the cause, for the virus itself. And uh, and so uh, it is for uh, purposes of both epidemiology, mm-hmm. tracking the the spread of the disease, and also letting people know that uh, if they're sick, they at least are not contagious with uh, with COVID, with the uh, with the coronavirus, that would allow them to then go back to work, uh, whether it's as a teacher or a nurse or a bus driver, et cetera. Uh, we, we don't want people to have to isolate for 14 days and then Uh, have it turn out they never had the virus to start with.
0: Well, so just brass tacks, if somebody thinks that they might have the symptoms, as you say, and the symptoms, as I understand it, are high fever, uh, respiratory difficulties, coughing, things like that. If you think that you have symptoms, what should you do or should you go?
1: Don't go to your doctor unless your symptoms are severe. Call your doctor. Call your primary care physician uh, and get advice from them about what to do. There are two challenges with folks just going to the doctor if they have a cough. One is uh, that they might actually not have been infected before, and they might get infected at the facility. And the Mm -hmm. second is just overwhelming the medical system. Uh, Our healthcare system is already strained just at the beginnings of this epidemic, and we are going to have to take some pretty strong measures to make sure that it is the people who need treatment who are getting into the clinics and the hospitals. Uh, I will tell you that it is very hard to keep people from... uh, getting spun up and and wanting to be tested and wanting to go to the doctor when they have mild symptoms, but uh, it's, particularly uh, those who are older and those who have compromised immune systems who really need to uh, seek that help and be attended to first.
0: Yeah, You're saying people over 60 in particular and people who have other complicating issues are, are the people who should be prioritized here. But you're speaking to a larger issue, which is that there's a, a lot of disinformation and, and misinformation uh, about coronavirus, yeah, especially, right. unfortunately, at the federal level. Um, and that gets into a specific listener question from Alex Baxter Johnson, who wants to know, what is the best way to manage misinformation and panic around coronavirus?
1: I've suggested that, uh, and we're going to move forward with this. That we set up a, a truth squad of sorts. Uh, somebody said we need a we need a Corona Snopes, but uh, we <laughs> we we need someone to one clear source to be putting out correct information, usually in response to rumors and misinterpretations. Uh, It has been happening with maddening frequency, uh, and it is to be expected in a situation like this, but it can lead to real harm uh, when people are passing around bad information. So we need to um, stand up a single clear uh, clearinghouse for for the right information. It needs to be coming from public health, not from uh, rumors on the internet, not even from politicians, but from Uh, The people, the scientists who are charged with knowing uh, uh, truth from falsehood.
0: Because of its connection to the Trump administration, I think some people are hesitant about uh, trusting information coming from the CDC's website. Are there state or county sources that you rely on and recommend?
1: Yes, our King County Public Health website, as well as the state health department website, are good sources of information. Uh, I'm not qualified to pass judgment on the uh, validity of the information on the CDC website. Uh, Obviously, the CDC has been challenged with budget cuts over the course of years. uh, But the folks who are here on the ground in King County and are housed actually here in the Chinook building, our headquarters in downtown Seattle, are doing a great job of uh, tracking the progress of the virus, as well as helping us uh, identify what uh, moves we can make to try to stay ahead of it.
0: The two sites that I know have been uh, recommended by both you and Governor Inslee are doh.wa.gov and also kingcounty.gov COVID. I will have both of those for listeners at indivisiblepodcast.org. I want to talk about the situation that is developing with quarantine. I know that the county is moving to buy a motel as a quarantine site, plus some modular housing units. What can you tell us about those and who they're for?
1: So we're going to make those assets available for public health to to use to triage as they think appropriate. Uh, in general, we're acquiring, for example, the motel property for isolation and recovery. So that would be really, if you you've confirmed that you have been exposed, you can be in a place where you're not going to expose others and where you have the opportunity to recover. Um, that could be for people who don't have a home to, to isolate in hmm. for, for the population that's homeless, or it could be for people who can't return home because they might infect their family. They might be, uh, for example, college students who live in a dormitory setting. Uh, we need to make sure that we have ample capacity to allow people to recover without infecting others and to get them out of the hospitals and free up the space in hospitals for the people who need that treatment.
0: Can you give us a sense of how many beds we're looking at currently?
1: Yeah, I don't have a a, a clear number on the rooms in the motel that we've acquired. It's many dozen. I think it's about 80 or a little north of that. And then uh, among the three modular communities that are going to be creating, uh, one in the interbay area, one in North Seattle, and one uh, in Top Hat near White Center, there's uh, about 170-person capacity. That varies depending on whether you are confirmed to be affected, uh, infected, in which case you could be in closer proximity to others, or whether you're simply... Um, being quarantined. And we don't know yet whether you've been infected, because if you're not infected, we obviously don't want you to be uh, too near someone who has been. So public health sure. will manage all those assets. We're continuing to work to get others uh, so that we have them across the county. And uh, that, uh, that work is going on with our facilities division here.
0: And how will that treatment be covered for people who will be quarantined there?
1: So the treatment is through the health system. The These facilities are not for treatment as much as they are for isolation. The people in Understood. these will not okay. be having the kinds of symptoms that uh, cause them to need to be hospitalized. I'm just going to mention that in standing up these kinds of facilities, we have a great advantage in that we have at the head of our facilities division, uh, Tony Wright, who's a retired Army colonel, former head of the Army Corps of Engineers here, and a guy who's stood up large uh, temporary communities across uh, war zones in, in uh In the Middle East. And he uh, has a lot of experience doing these kinds of things very professionally and in a big hurry. So uh, we're we're lucky to have him.
0: As of today, you are officially recommending that people who can work from home. I'll just ask you flat out. Are you foreseeing that becoming mandatory at any point in the future?
1: It could. Uh, We want to do everything we can now to slow the spread of the virus and give the medical community the chance to create treatments and ultimately a vaccine. Uh, What we are doing here at King County is having our employees who can work from home, work from home for the time being. We're going to continually reevaluate that strategy. Uh, the idea is just social distancing, keeping people from infecting each other at work. Many of our employees have to come to work in person. Bus drivers have to be at work in person, jail guards, police officers, sewage treatment plant workers. For them, we're going to be providing the materials and supplies they need to stay safe, the procedures to stay safe and healthy so that they can continue to provide service to the public.
0: And I know that there has been a concern about mass transit as well. Can you address that, people being exposed to COVID by taking mass Transit.
1: Yes. Um, obviously, any place where people gather is a place of possible infection, whether you're in elevators, in an office, in a church or on a bus. And I have uh, directed Metro to step up significantly the cleaning of the uh, normally touch surfaces on the bus. Uh, they have a regular cleaning schedule, but they're going through now and disinfecting much more frequently. And uh, the, we, what we want to remind people is the same rule applies on the bus as it does anywhere else. Keep as much distance as you can. Uh, don't uh, uh, wash your hands, of course, and don't touch your face uh, because that's how people become infected. Sure. This virus can only get to you if you uh, get the 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 virus in your eyes, mouth, nose, ears, And we need to prevent that. And it is a hard habit to break uh, for Hmm. folks, but they just need to work on
0: it. I will recommend carrying around a handkerchief, which I have done for many years. Uh, I've been in the voiceover business, and if I get sick, well, then I can't work. So uh, yeah, so take my advice and carry a handkerchief if you have to scratch your nose or your eyes or whatever. Uh, I know that we're very, very short on time. So I just want to ask a question that is roughly about some of our more vulnerable and low-income populations. We got a number of questions about people who, you know, may not be able to uh, get sick leave when they're subjected to a quarantine, children who rely on uh, meals at schools. And of course, there's a question about the homeless population being particularly vulnerable to this and also being scapegoated. Um, I I know it's a lot to unpack there, but can you just kind of address uh, how we look at this in terms of some of our more vulnerable populations in our community?
1: Yes. Well, I guess I'll start with the last first. Uh, the outrageous uh, scapegoating first of the Asian community and then of the homeless is uh, um, really not to be accepted. Um, <clears throat> the, the The fact is that this virus is indiscriminate and that uh, it is not helpful at all for people to be demonizing others while we're trying to take on this common enemy of the coronavirus. Um, the challenge of, uh, lower paid workers, many of whom have to be face to face with the public is one that, uh, we are going to take on directly here in the County and our workforce by making sure that we are having managers work with each employee to make sure they're getting the sick leave that they have adequate sick leave to be able to be away from work. If they're ill, we don't want anyone coming in sick, but also, uh, to make sure that, uh, folks who are particularly vulnerable, whether they're uh, older employees or people with compromised immune systems, are provided alternative uh, work opportunities so that they are not being exposed in the course of their work. Uh, we are calling on private employers to do the same, to, uh, during this emergency, take actions that will allow people to remain employed, remain healthy, and come out the other side of this, um, uh, uh, you know, solvent and. Uh, and uh, have the businesses as well continue to be successful. We think it's possible. Uh, We think that uh, it's going to require us to deviate from business as usual, and I think that the conversations that we're having now with the business community are uh, very much in the vein of trying to find common solutions to these challenges, not just for the highly paid and those of us, the ability to uh, stay at home, but for everyone who keeps this economy and this community moving.
0: I, I just want to say in closing, thank you for your leadership during this very uncertain time. Uh, we know that there has not been maybe the response that we would have liked, say from the federal government, but certainly uh, at the state level, it has been exemplary. You have been exemplary. Uh, and I just, uh, on behalf of all of our listeners here in the residents of King County, thank you.
1: Thank you so much. This may be the last time we have
0: an opportunity to do something about partisan gerrymandering.
2: The people of our country are sick of this. And if we don't come and say that enough is enough, and nothing's going to change.
0: Gerrymandering is something that has plagued the American political process almost since its inception, but a new documentary sheds light on how the practice has been weaponized by the modern GOP to subvert democracy itself. The film is called Slay the Dragon, and its creators, Barak Goodman and Chris Durrance, join us now. Barak Goodman and Chris Durrance, thank you guys both so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
2: We appreciate it. Thank you very much.
3: Thanks so much.
0: So I know that you've both made political documentaries, and I'm wondering why you would set out to make a film about gerrymandering.
3: This
2: project had its origins in a a book I read in 2016 or thereabouts by a guy named Dave Daly. And Dave had written really a fantastically reported book about Project Red Map, which is the effort you referred to by the Republican Party to weaponize gerrymandering. I, I knew very little about gerrymandering, uh, and this was a revelation to me and, and really went a long way towards explaining why our political system seems so gridlock, seems so partisan, seems so out of touch with the desires, wishes of the voters. And when you encounter something like that, it just kind of takes the blinders off. It's exciting. And we, you know, Chris and I have done films together for a long time. We immediately thought this would make a great film. And we had a great partner in participant media.
0: Yeah, it's true that when you start to unpack the subject matter, I mean, I think listeners to this show, because it's a very progressive activist audience, are familiar with not only what gerrymandering is, but just how insidious it is in the way that it's been used by the GOP, but uh, the way that you unpack it over the course of the film really shows just how far the tentacles reach. Um, we know that the GOP has recognized that demographics in the U.S. are just not on their side, right? The country's getting younger, it's getting more liberal, getting more urban, less white. So they essentially have tried to rig the game. And yes, so you just mentioned uh, Project Red Map. That was something that they started in 2010. Tell us a little bit more about that and how it worked.
3: I mean, Project Redknapp really was the brainchild of of this guy Chris Jankowski, who we interview in in the film. And, and can I
0: he, ask you about that actually? Because he's a, I, yeah. I was very surprised that he agreed to be in the film because he's something of the of the villain. Were you surprised that he agreed to be in the film?
3: We were surprised, but but once we sat down with him, once we once we met him before the interview, and then sat down with him, we realized pretty quickly that. He's kind of proud of what he's done. I mean, and in some ways, rightly so, because he is the architect of the American sort of the political landscape in, in many ways that we that we see around us. And he did it for almost no money. I mean, less than most Senate campaigns took control of Congress, took control of multiple states for a decade. And it was all done on the back of an idea and in the darkest night, really, for the Republican Party, which was, which was um, the night after the night that Barack Obama was elected in 2008. I mean, that really was a dark, dark time for the Republicans. They thought there was no way back. And this guy, Chris Jankowski, has an idea, realizes that 2010 is a redistricting year. It's going to be a good year anyway, you know, for, for Republicans. But he realizes, more importantly, it's a census year. So there's redistricting to be done. So this is a year you can really lock in your gains for a long, long time. And And he did it.
2: Yeah, and
0: you mentioned that it's relatively cheap. I mean, 30 million dollars is the number that gets cited and that is not, you know, chump change, but in terms of what they were able to accomplish by just creating this extraordinary shift in the lens the American political landscape, 30 million dollars is nothing. Who are some of the people who donated? And and then also how did they manage to take over so many state houses?
2: Well, they went to their usual Big funders. They went to Walmart, they went to the Chamber of Commerce, they went to the Koch brothers. And as you say, this was sort of the change they they had in their couch. I mean, it was it was nothing. They, part of their part of Chris's pitch was essentially, you know, we can accomplish huge amounts of change for very little. And and that's in large part because the, the races that they contributed to, down ballot races, tiny races in places way, way, you know, off the political map where a little bit of money went a very long way. And specifically,
0: we're talking about flipping state houses, right? We're talking about flipping state legislatures. So in places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, I believe, and also North Carolina were some of the places that they targeted.
2: I believe they flipped 11 state houses that, you know, and it was, as I said, it was a matter of investing a little bit of money in races where a little bit of money goes a long way. And once they had control of the state houses, Control of the governorship, also, they had complete control of the redistricting process. That was the entire strategy. Gain control of the maps, and then we can re-engineer them to give ourselves an advantage all the way through the decade of the two thousand and tens until the next redistricting cycle. And then because we have an advantage already, we'll be able to keep that advantage alive. So th- that's the insidious thing about gerrymandering. One of them is that it's self-perpetuating. You, if you can't dislodge the map makers, they can keep drawing maps favorable to them until there's some kind of intervention that prevents it.
0: Right. And one of the things that is particularly insidious is the way in which you talk about how 2010, the technology had arrived such that they were able to do this with surgical precision in ways never even dreamed of before. Can you talk about that process
1: a little bit?
3: I mean, what's happened basically is that, and you you'll see some fantastic footage of the old old machines that they used to use to to, to read all that, and it's so clunky. But by 2010, you get the beginnings of very powerful computers combined with huge data sets on Americans coming from social from social media, coming from magazine subscriptions, coming. Everything about our habits, how much we earn, our race, our gender, our age, our habits, our interests, starts coming together. And so you can pull this information into these large databases and then literally, with a computer, walk down, metaphorically, walk down a block and pretty much house by house have a good sense of how someone is likely to vote. And for which party, sorry, for which party they're likely to vote. And then you can start shifting your boundaries around so that you can choose the voters who are going the, in the right, the right uh, districts, then are going to give you an impregnable majority. And you see that in Wisconsin, uh, in spades. I mean, they did it in many, many states. But in Wisconsin, you see it in spades. In 2012, and then again in 2018, Democrats won huge in Wisconsin. Yeah. Did not win a single seat in the in the state.
0: And what you mean by that is Democrats had the majority vote by quite a bit, but didn't pick majority up a single
3: majority vote. The governor. Yeah. The big, big victories in the in most local elections. And Barack Obama won huge when he was when he was running in uh, in uh, I think 2012, I think it was. So they do they so the vote share is massive, but the seat share, Republicans did not lose a thing. And it's just it's just remarkable. As one of the people says in the film, it's just an astonishing perversion of democracy. It runs totally against what democracy should be
0: about. Yeah, as you say, it's it's essentially politicians choosing their voters as opposed to vice versa. And then once that happens, it kind of creates a one-party rule, which is, uh, as you also say, is very uh, difficult to start to extricate yourself from. You open the film by talking about the Flint water crisis. And I don't think that most people will connect the dots between that and gerrymandering, but you do. Uh, how are they connected?
2: Well... What happened in Michigan is that a legislature was, was gerrymandered in a Republican majority legislature that was not at all, you know, uh, responsive to the will of the people. They, they, they were insulated from the ballot box essentially by having these safe seats drawn for them. So when, when uh, it came time to decide what to do about the water system in Flint, There was essentially there was an emergency manager placed over Flint. That was done by the state legislature. Emergency manager is essentially an outsider with no uh, accountability whatsoever to the local people. That emergency manager decided to switch the water supply to save a few million dollars to the Flint River, which the local Flint residents knew was polluted and horrible. They rebelled. They they voted statewide to to evict the state this this emergency manager. And the legislature didn't pay any attention to them. They essentially said, "Too bad. We're keeping him. Uh, we don't care what you think, and we don't have to care what you think because we don't need to face you at the ballot box." So, you know, it was a series of decisions made by uh, essentially you know impregnably, uh ensconced leaders against the will of the local community to the detriment of the local community. And and it, it was just a, a glaring example of how gerrymandering leads to this sort of imperious um, un- unaccountability and sometimes with disastrous consequences.
3: It was important to us throughout that, what, that we show the real world consequences of gerrymandering, and it's not just Flynn, because it's, it's it's gerrymandering is this is this word that few people understand. Redistricting is a process that few people understand, pay attention or even pay attention to, uh, but it does have real world consequences. And for us, I think it was really really important. That I think the, the, the success of the film, to the extent that there is any, but the, to the to the extent that we've made a successful film, it's because we have tried to bring home that. That all of the legislation that you see on, on abstinence, on guns, or lack of action on climate change, the things you see all around you in your local community where a legislature is not responsive to the will of the people that it should be, it's because of that disconnect that Barrett was talking about. Um, and so Flint was the prime example, but you, but you see it, we tried, to, we tried to see this throughout the film just to remind people that this is not some, this is not, you know, Political Science 101. This is changing people's lives and has real, real consequences.
0: Absolutely. And I will just say, I think the film does a, a tremendous job with that. Um, and, you know, the Flint water crisis is such an extraordinary way of, of framing all of it and showing that these sorts of gerrymandering issues really do have real world effects, as you're saying. You bring in a young citizen activist. You follow this young woman named Katie Fahey, who starts a campaign to end gerrymandering in Michigan. And she is just extraordinary. In fact, I think she's kind of the star of the film in my eyes. Tell us about her.
2: Katie really is the star of the film. Um, We met her very early on in our process and in her process. She had become very disillusioned after the 2016 election. She was a not a political person per se she was just an ordinary person uh but she wanted to do something and for some reason she latched on to this issue she told us she had you know encountered it in school and it always seemed totally unfair to her and she put out a facebook post just into the void does anyone want to do this with me and she got this incredible response there have been many others in michigan you know, which is a very gerrymandered state, you know, very upset about this. I think she tapped into people's feeling like elections should be fair. We can disagree with each other, but at least we should be, you know, on the same playing field when we run for office and Republicans and Democrats alike feel this way. So she tapped into that she was brilliant at the way she marshaled this campaign she she named it voters not politicians so it immediately wasn't an ideological divide between democrats and republicans it was a divide between elected representatives who were distorting the will of the people and the people themselves and one obstacle after another she she and her colleagues you know faced these obstacles and overcame them against all odds, everyone predicted this would fail.
0: Yeah, including the local journalists. Uh, the journalists totally. in the area were expressing a lot of cynicism as to whether or not these uh, local upstarts could get anything done.
2: What was so inspiring about it was that you know our film is essentially about democracy and about attacks on democracy and this most pernicious of all attacks on democracy. And yet here is an expression of pure democracy, right? Pure grassroots effort there wasn't anything cynical about it they turned away money they turned away offers of help from big organizations and they just made it about ordinary people coming together to do something and so it was just this juxtaposition of the worst of of attacks against democracy with with the best of democracy and you know we were on the edge of our seats not knowing who would win in this titanic battle till the very very end and i think that comes across in the film it's a it's a kind of you know Real kind of suspense story, uh, who's going who's going to prevail and, and the stakes couldn't be higher, really.
3: And what was so exciting, just just the people who are involved. you don't we, we get to know Katie and we get to know some of the people around her. But these are teachers, these are people in universities, these are engineers, these are people from the car plants in Michigan, these are farmers from upstate, these are designers, these are just people from all walks of life and all ages. And they just and somehow she just brings them all together. She inspires them to do things that they never thought that they could do. Most of them, the most common thing that they would tell us is, I didn't know I had it in me. I didn't I'm not an activist. I'm I'm not the kind of person that gets out there and does this kind of thing. But there's something about Katie, something about the something about the idea that as Barak said, that she tapped into. And you, you felt it all around the state. And I think they were taken by surprise as well. They started out, you see this a little bit in the film, but they started out doing these information sessions about gerrymandering. They'd take over a church or a school hall or something on the weekend, Sunday morning, and they'd have hundreds of people coming, standing room about to hear about gerrymandering in rural Michigan. It was astonishing. And they... And Katie organizes this all all online. The first the first scene in the film with Katie is really the first time that people have met from the group physically. And it just grows and grows and grows and becomes this unstoppable movement. And it was, um, as Barrett said, we were right there from the start. And it was just, it was fascinating and, and it's so exciting to see.
2: I'll say one more thing about it, which is that while it grew and while it spread, we we were also witness to the attacks against it from the entrenched interests in Michigan, the, the, mostly from the right. And, you know, watching that was, was, was as dispiriting as, as, as Katie's was inspiring, because it was just big money, cynical, cynical attacks. We knew they were false. We knew they were lies. Um, and we knew it was a sort of desperate attempt to, to hold on to power, but, but nevertheless, watching it happen was, was really, you know, disappointing. Um, and, um, so we we got again we got to see both the best and the worst of our system of government.
0: I will also just mention that you follow a parallel track about gerrymandering in Wisconsin. Uh, this is in response to a lot of what uh, GOP Governor Scott Walker did when he ascended to power, attacks on unions uh, and the like. Um, and you also follow some. Uh, some activist attorneys who challenged this through the courts, and that had a little bit different of a trajectory,
2: didn't it? It did. I mean, when we began following that case, it was, again, very early. They'd won at the federal uh, lower federal court in Wisconsin, but they they had always in mind that this would end up in the Supreme Court, and this would be the test case that would hopefully in their eyes, you know, end gerrymandering once and for all. And the, the protagonists here, the main protagonists are a married couple. Uh, Nick Stephanopoulos, a Sh- University of Chicago law professor and his, and his Australian born wife, uh, Ruth Greenwood, who's a voting rights expert. And the two of them, you know, they Nick had had come up with a, a measurement of gerrymandering called the efficiency gap. And the Supreme Court had always said, if you can bring us a measurement that is that really shows when this is a partisan gerrymandering is happening, we will be able to pass, you know, a law that says or or rule on on a case and basically outlaw it. But if you can't bring us a measurement, how can we possibly get involved? Well, here was a measurement. And so the lower courts all embraced this. And there was a lot of optimism that the Supreme Court would as well. So we wanted to get in on this case, follow it through, watch it happen. These were some of the most brilliant people I've ever met um, and completely opened up the process to us, let our cameras in, let us follow their strategy sessions and their meetings and their, you know, all the hope and and this is an emotional issue for them. Sure. And it was, uh, it was really, you know, again, along with Katie's story, again, a privilege to be able to be on that journey with them.
0: It's just an extraordinary thing that you were able to follow these two stories in tandem and watch them play out. And I don't want to give anything away, but I will say that for those who don't remember what happened with the Wisconsin gerrymandering Supreme Court challenge, uh, it's actually a nail biter. I, I will just say to both of you and and uh, as a recommendation for people listening, uh, this is just a tremendous film. I mean, I really can't recommend it enough. So, in screenings and the like, uh, are you finding that people are seeing this as, as a wake up? Are you seeing light bulbs go on, people becoming aware of the scope of the problem of gerrymandering?
2: You know, not only the light bulb moments, and I think it, it does connect a lot of dots for people and sort of, you know, brings home to them, ah, you know, that that's. I knew there was something going on. you know it's not mm. the answer to every problem we have in politics, but it's it's at the root of a lot of them. but but not only that, but an emotional response. I mean, th- there are a lot of a lot of tears and a lot of cheers in this film, and you know we felt them, and we weren't sure audiences would feel them, but but universally, we've screened this a number of times at this point around the country, and we've gotten that reaction. and and particularly in the states where we focus on Michigan, North Carolina, and Wisconsin, Who live and breathe and are intimately familiar with this practice, you know, it's it's for them. It's sort of a a validation of what they suspected and felt all along, and and it's been very emotional for those kinds of people.
3: My favorite reaction was at one of the screenings we did. I can't remember where it was. It might well have been in Michigan. It probably was in Michigan. But so as soon as the lights went up and we came on stage to do a a brief uh, Q and A afterwards, an audience member shouted out. KT for president, ah. <laughs> uh, and the whole room, the whole room
0: erupted. Well, I think people, when they see the film, will realize why uh, somebody might have shouted that. She does seem like she has quite a a future, whether in activism or politics. Who knows? It'll be interesting to see. Um, so we are going into 2020, which is, of course, a census year. There's a lot writing on this year's election. Um, there are a number of citizen organizations that are working to overturn gerrymandering. I won't spoil anything by saying that they have proven to be, at this point, more effective than court challenges. Are there any organizations that you like and would recommend?
2: Well, the Eric Holder's organization, All on the Line, is probably the preeminent anti-gerrymandering organization. Now, they—they they are a, a you know an organization rep they don't represent the Democratic Party, but they are attempting to elect Democrats. Um, and we are trying to be nonpartisan about this. It's a little hard when one party is doing all the gerrymandering or most of it, but nevertheless, you know, we we are against the practice altogether and we are for, um, as a film and as as producers and directors of this movie, we are for the citizens commissions that are, you know, we think that's the gold standard of solutions. And, and I, I believe that all in the line, also agrees with that so any organization that backs that solution in our opinion is they're on the right track and um those citizens commissions are not possible everywhere but in many states they are and and you know now there's one you know there are several around the country and um we hope that 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 those will proliferate because that really is the solution to this problem so long as politicians are drawing lines you're going to have politics enter in and and that you know, that's the wrong solution so you know we think that citizens ought to be doing this and they can do it fairly um, there's all sorts of checks on it and that's the way to go
3: it's just been great to see how this movement is taking off frankly and you know it starts in Arizona and California and those are hard fought battles they got to the Supreme Court the California effort failed the first time and then the group just you know, dust itself down and comes back and gets it passed. And and as more and more states see the success of, of those the, the systems in those two states, they become energized. And so it's not just Michigan, but Virginia is talking about it. Quite a few states, as Barrett said, I think Ohio is talking about it. Quite a few states are, are doing that. And I think it just takes America back to the way that politics used to be, and you and you see this in 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 Katie's message throughout it's power resides in the people, and so the power to draw these lines, the power to set the tone of politics should reside in the people. It's not something we should be delegating to politicians at all. And Katie shows that.
0: Well, that's a perfect place to leave it. Barrett Goodman and Chris Durrance are the creators of the film Slay the Dragon, which is opening nationwide in theaters on March 13th. To learn more, go to slaythedragonfilm.com. Uh, Barrett Goodman and Chris Durrance, uh, such a pleasure. Great film. Thank you so much for uh, for talking with us today.
2: Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Well, what a week it has been here in Washington. Obviously, the main call to action this week is to stay healthy and safe. Wash your hands often. Do not touch your face. Try to avoid crowds if you can. You've heard all this stuff already, but I think it's worth repeating. And, you know, just on a personal note, I will say that it is a very strange sensation knowing that you are living through history, I remember when I was a kid, I used to wonder what it must have been like living through the 1960s. And you people who were there, your mileage may vary, but I can imagine that it felt a lot like right now. There are global events unfolding every single day with outcomes that are far from certain, and it feels like everything is happening all at once. I probably don't need to list everything that is happening all at once, but I'm going to. So, in addition to the coronavirus outbreak happening in our very backyard, we have the primary, which has been unnerving and upsetting at some level for pretty much everybody who's following it. We have just had a dramatic downturn in the stock market. And of course, every day in every way, we have Trump, who is as dangerous and as unpredictable a leader as the country has ever had. And what makes things feel historic is that it is far from certain how things are going to turn out, right? We used to be able to rely on certain outcomes in America. Timely elections, for example, the peaceful transition of power, federal leadership that would rise to an international crisis and say the right things, do the right things. And we don't have that right now. But what we do have is each other. I've been leaning on my community a lot lately. And I think that's right. I think that's appropriate. I rely on all of you to stand side by side with me and lift me up when I need it. And then for you to come to me to be lifted up when you need it. None of us can say how all this is going to turn out. But what we can do and what I am proud to do is work on the outcome that I want. As I told Dow Constantine, I am so proud of the leadership here in our state. And so I will work to keep great leaders like Dow and Governor Jay Inslee in office. I will work to keep myself and my family healthy and safe. And I will take some time to reconsider who I want to support to lead our country going forward. And, and this is super important, I will be ready to change that allegiance if there is a different nominee after the convention. And then I will work with everything I have to make sure that that candidate defeats Donald Trump. And, if need be, I will do everything in my power to make sure that he actually leaves office when he's defeated. Because I'm coming to realize that history isn't passive, It is impacted by what each of us does every single day. So to everybody listening, please stay healthy, stay safe, and thank you so much for being in this fight together. And that is it for this week's show. You can find links to everything that we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. If we'd like to get in touch. The email is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the DemCast Podcast Network. Learn more about DemCast at demcastusa.com. Thanks again to Dow Constantine, Barrett Goodman, and Chris Durrance. Special thanks to Gina Topp and Sarah Dickmeyer. Extra special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.